Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Mark Safe, tales of your very favorite and most beloved man-made disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. This is all Vita again, and Melanie and Brianne have asked me to be a part of another podcast. Can you tell I'm so excited? First, let me apologize for my voice. Um, the golden rods are blooming here, and they're not a friend of mine. So let me tell you, I have been a nurse for over 40 years, and um, I'm retired now, of course, because I'm too old, but... Um, uh, I I don't like scary things at all, and that's a whole other story. It leads back to my childhood with my grandmother, who was not one of the nicest people in the world. But about 1973, there was a movie coming out called The Exorcist, and um, there was a lot of hype about it here because Arkansas is smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt. So a lot of churches were all in the for about it, and my dad's church was really, really on the ball about it. Um, they just knew it was demon-possessed, and they were going to do everything they could to stop it. Well, at that time, my husband was an auxiliary policeman in Little Rock, and so um, it was on a Friday night, and my husband was on patrol. And um, they got a call for disturbing the peace at Town and Country Shopping Center. Well, guess what? My dad's church members and him were on a flatbed truck praying and singing about the exorcist and um, having to stop it. And they were playing, singing very loudly, had drums and guitars going, and um, they were praying real loudly. And so um, my husband got the call to go out there and put a stop to this for disturbing the peace because it was a Friday night and the shopping center was busy. And uh, so he got the call. And my dad, when he saw my husband, was quite shocked. And he said, what are you doing here? And, and Phil said, well, we got a call that you all are disturbing the peace and you've got to stop. And and so all of them were all upset, and they decided they would pack up. But my husband and the patrolman that he was with was afraid that they were going to uh, go to another shopping center. So they st- stayed in the parking lot until they got all packed up, and um, they uh, followed them out to the church to make sure that they weren't going to another shopping center. Um, it kind of caused a little bit of dissent between my husband and my dad because Phil was Phil was just doing his job, and they all were shocked that they got a call of disturbing the peace when they were being um, very religious and and just praying, you know, that this movie would not show. Now, let me tell you, I've been a nurse for a long time, but I don't have a lot to do with dead people. And I certainly don't 
have a lot to do with uh, scary movies or anything like that. They freaked me out. And so we I had said that I was not going to go see The Exorcist because I had seen previews of it. I'd heard about it. I talked to people that had been there. And my dad had convinced me that if you went, you was, you was bad things were going to happen to you. And so I'm so spooky that I wouldn't have any part of that. Well, let me just tell you, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law convinced us that we needed to go see it. So as I was saying, we went to a drive-in movie to see The Exorcist, um, much to my dismay. Uh, Phil and I were in the back seat, um, and I managed maybe two scenes, maybe. I spent the rest of the time in the floorboard. Uh, the back seat. I was just petrified of it. So I spent the entire evening stretched out in the floorboard over my husband's feet. Um, if you think the exorcist is scary looking at it, hearing them, hearing it, it's just as bad. Um, I don't think I'll ever get over it. My sister-in-law kept screaming <laughs> and she would say, her head spinning or something like that, you know, And I, but it freaked me out. But anyway, Dad, Dad just was sure that, you know, something bad was going to happen to us because we had seen it. And so later on, he asked my husband, he said, why did you come out there to arrest us? We were praying to God about this movie. And Phil said, Pop, I just had to. They, I got sent on a call. I didn't know it was your church group. So they got over their spell, but um, it was bad. And uh, to this day, I have never seen the exorcist except through the full board of a car. So I love you guys. I'm glad to be a part of this. Um, thanks for asking me again. I hope I can't wait to listen to this crazy podcast. Okay. So if you blow away in this hurricane that's about to blow you away, can I have, can I just go ahead and petition to have Aunt Veda be my new co-host? Yes. I don't think there is another person on the face of this planet that would make a better co-host. I think that would be such a tribute to your memory. And I think that she would be the best as long as she doesn't start by apologizing for her beautiful voice at the beginning of every episode. You know, they're not her friends. <sighs> okay, but she apologized for her voice last time, too. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, God, I'm obsessed with her. Okay, I am obsessed with her. And also, I have a, a secret that I realized as I was listening to that you probably don't know. Uh-oh. <laughs> I am team Aunt Veda's dad on this. My grandpa? I've never seen it. I will never see it. I um I believe it might do stuff. <laughs> my I wish I, I never unfortunately got to meet my grandparents. They passed away um uh before I was born. My grandfather actually passed away a year before I was born, so that sucks. Um but he was a really cool guy. Um, well, and I'm surprised. Time and place, I'm agreeing with him. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised that he was up in arms about this. I think before he joined the church is like the mental picture I have. So when she told me this story, I'm like, okay. 
It was, See, it was hard. In my opinion, you don't have to be a religious fanatic to understand when you might be opening a little portal into your life to let the devil in. I don't mess with the occult, Melanie. I am I am serious as a heart attack about that. It was pretty shocking. I have watched um, The Exorcist a gazillion times. I haven't watched it probably, I would say, three or four years. It's been a little while since I revisited it, so... Picking up some of the scenes again, doing the research. I don't know. I, you know what? Actually, I don't think I've seen it since I've become a mom. And I don't think I can watch it now as a parent. That's interesting. Because it's a kid? Because it's a kid. And some of the scenes in there are like, they're hard to watch. I mean, it's basically a mom and a daughter story. Okay. Well, so you are going to have to do this episode as though it was for someone who's never seen it, because I've never seen it. <laughs> okay, and that is going to be okay, because I'll kind of talk a little bit about some scenes, so you get an idea. But for the most part, this is an episode about why the movie The Exorcist, why people think it's cursed. Because it is. <laughs> I had to do a little pep talk with myself and a little make sure my inner portal is closed in order to do this episode um, i'm really worried about you actually are you why i mean it gave me the jitters a little bit so oh it's not that it gives me the jitters i am a total wuss about scary movies but um no like i no i mean as far as possessions you're worried i'm possessed no, I'm worried oh. that I'm going to make you uncomfortable about possession. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, You know the whole coma story, right? Right. And you know, a few people in our mom group have asked me a few times if I had any experiences during it. Mm-hmm. I've just sidestepped that question because the answer is yes. And I was... I need... One of these days, can I, you do an episode, please? Maybe... Maybe, but it is... I know it's asking a lot, but... Oh, I, like emotional labor-wise, I don't care. I just don't know that it's really that interesting. And honestly, I was in a coma, so maybe Eric would have to do that episode. <laughs> um, but I could do an episode about the place that I went during it. And I tell you what, it... I don't mess with the occult. <laughs> that's, that's what I have to say about that. So... Well, as I your am... friend, I'm not going to let the occult mess with you. Oh, I like it. I got your back, babe. Okay. So when I'm talking about your uh, your loft demons, I'm like low-key a little bit serious. No, I know. I, I'm not like ultra-religious or anything. I mean, I am a Christian, but I'm not like fanatically religious. I'm Episcopalian. Um, but I completely believe in demon shit, like 100%. I'm right there with you. I am totally right there with you. Absolutely. Did you bring any demons from your loft? I don't know. It sounds like my house is full of demons right now. Um, just for the heads up for everybody that's listening. <laughs> we are recording earlier. There's, uh, there's a hurricane coming. I'm east of it. It's it's just made landfall this hour. I sent Brianna a video earlier of my Ooh, palm it trees. It was really spooky. In the sugar canes, like all sideways. But it's a perfect ambiance. For this episode. So if you hear trees crashing through my window, 
that is what's going on. We're not yep. editing We're it out. We're asking the audio guy to leave it in for ambiance. Yes. So are you ready for spooky stuff? I am ready for, well, my portal is closed. <laughs> I know I sound like such a woo-woo person. And the funny thing is I'm not, but but my portal is closed. I will not be letting any demons into my life. Um, all the lights are on. I'm ready. Bubbles. Bubbles. All right. So if you haven't seen The Exorcist or like my sweet Aunt Beta, listen to it on the floorboard of a car. I can't really blame you. I love her. She's the best. Well, the movie, I mean, it is. It's it's scary as fuck. It's a classic. There's a reason why people still watch it today. Um, the Exorcist, it's a 1973 horror, horror film. I almost said horror film. <laughs> about That's inappropriate, young... <laughs> Melanie. It's about a child. Oh, and also we're not bleeping this episode. We're I mean, not? No, because it's The Exorcist, like... If Aunt Veda listened to this episode or listened to this movie, there is nothing that I can say in this episode that is going to offend her because the audio in that movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sweet Jesus. Okay, then I'm going to censor myself because I don't want to put a profanity in Aunt Veda's episode. You're just trying Which, to be the favorite. I am. Um, <laughs> I, I've already censored myself, though, because in honesty, this is my one F-bomb I'm going to drop. I don't fuck with the occult. <laughs> Okay, back to it. <laughs> back to it. So 1973, this horror film comes out and it's about a young girl and she is possessed by a demon. Desperate for help, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. The movie's all about excess. It's filled with gore to the max, language that would shock a sailor, and Aunt Veda, and some pretty <laughs> disturbing images. And disturbing, honestly, it's an understatement. It's highly regarded as a curse film in the company of other greats like The Poltergeist, Omen, Twilight Zone, the movie. Like, everybody is convinced this movie is cursed. I actually um, find cursed movies fascinating, like trying to really just too. break it down. Like, is it cursed? Is it just a bunch of coincidence? Like, I don't know. It. It's crazy. So my two spooky episodes today, I'm going to do The Exorcist. My next one will be The Poltergeist because I, I just love cursed movies. I just, it's cool. So I'm into it. today, I'm super here for it. the deep dive is The Exorcist. So I was really surprised to find out that The Exorcist, here we go. It's based on a novel by Peter Blatty of the same name. And it is actually based on a true story. Oh, <laughs> you know, I think I kind of did know that, actually. Tell me more. Okay, so in Cottage City, Maryland, there lived a 14-year-old boy who, in effort to keep anonymity, a word I cannot say, <laughs> um, he is referred to as Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim, depending on where you're doing your research. I'm going to stick with the name Roland because I'm re-bidging uh, Schitt's Creek. And me too. Well, yeah. I'm I'm watching season seven now that it's here because I just finished season six like a month ago. It's a little too soon, but you haven't finished the last season. No, I just started the last season. Oh, it it ends so perfectly. I well, I've started it over. It's so good, and the mental because this is so heavy. Just the mental picture of Roland shit being the subject of an exorcism totally cracks me up. Oh, I love it. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> so we're yes, gonna call yes. him Roland. Okay. Okay. Just to lighten it. 
So Roland, he was an only child and he was very, very close to his Aunt Harriet. And trust me, I get it. I love my aunts. We're all super close. (laughs) Well, Aunt Harriet, she was a spiritualist and she was also a fan of the Ouija board. And so, you know, they're close. Yeah. So she introduced Roland to the questionable board game. Guess how I feel about Ouija boards, Melanie. (laughs) Oh, we know. (laughs) Uh, Did you know Eric used one as a youth? Me too. Melanie. My mom bought it for me. This is why Aunt Veda is so pure, because she knew not to mess with this stuff. You know what? Um... I'm going to stop you right there. I can't say that Aunt Veda's ever used the Ouija board, um, but I've never really gotten into our family heritage with you, and I think Mm -hmm. you might be a little shocked and interested. Really? Mm -hmm. I'm definitely interested. Yeah. But she's, I'm I'm never, I'm going to die in the hell that Aunt Veda is, is pure at heart. She's a good witch for sure. If she oh, yeah. were to ever be a witch, she's not. But um, we've have we have some very. Clo- I'm disturbed by witchy stuff. I'm a bit witchy myself. Yeah, we we have um, very close in our family tree, which is like my grandmother. So and there was like even talks for a long time about a spell book. No one knows where it went after she passed. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Very interesting. We should do a special episode about that. I know. I should ask her. Maybe she'll interview for that because lots of interesting stuff. The more we can get Aunt Veda on this podcast, the better. Yeah. (laughs) So Aunt Harriet, she's a spiritualist. Spiritualism was actually a huge obsession in the States, and it spread it like wildfire in 1848 when two sisters in upstate New York claimed to have received messages from a spirit who was communicating by them or to them by knocking on their bedroom walls. Hmm. I don't like that. So it was like the new trend. Like everybody was jumping on this. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously a whole Ouija board episode here for you if you weren't mm. such a big scaredy cat. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not a scaredy cat. I just know stuff. Mm-hmm. So Roland was just your average boy. He was reading his comic books. He was playing his Ouija board. Mm. When one night while he was hanging out with his grandma, there was a drip, drip, drip. No. Even though there was nothing coming out of the faucets. Mm. Then Roland and Grams noticed that the family's Jesus painting, it started to shake. Oh, heck. It's creepy, right? Yes. That's not good. No. So... When Roland's parents finally got home, I don't know if they were on a date. I like to imagine that they went on a date because I haven't been on a date with my husband in forever. And oh, I really want one. So that's where I'm picturing that they were. But they got okay. home. So the drip, 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 it stopped. And all of a sudden, it was a sound of scratching and rapping that replaced the dripping sound. Okay, now rapping like knocking or rapping like Hamilton? Oh, well, it's scary, so knocking. Okay. okay. <laughs> that would checking. be such a cool ghost, though. I know. I might even have to let that ghost stay. <laughs> so Roland's dad, trying to convince his unsettled family that it was probably just a mouse, starts ripping up floorboards and wall panels to prove his point, which seems a bit extreme, but hey, you know, you do things for your family that you wouldn't normally you do. do. Yeah. 
Despite his best effort, there was no mouse to be found. 11 days after, on January 26th, poor Aunt Harriet kicked the bucket. (gasps) So if you were rolling and you missed your aunt, what would you do? I would never be Roland. Well, Roland busted out the old Ouija board and tried to give Aunt Harriet a ring. Instead of Aunt... Roland! Instead of Aunt Harriet, Roland opened the door from the other side, finding himself, obviously, possessed by demons. Of course he did. I mean, I don't want to victim blame, but yes, I do. Go ahead. This is, I'll give you this one. You can victim blame. Okay, I am. I am. He's the start of all this shit. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Stop. (laughs) All in all, there were almost 50 witnesses to poltergeist activities that followed Roland. Some of these included spooky noises, like the sound of marching feet, furniture moving in the house, a bottle of holy water being smashed to bits as it fell from next to him. And this nonsense, it followed him to school, too. When Mm -hmm. Roland's desk, quote, lurched into the aisle and began skittering about banging the desks of other classmates. I don't think that's real common, is it? No. Do you know if he went to a Catholic school? I hope so. (laughs) Okay. They're the ones that do the exorcisms. That's why I say. So... Roland would receive a couple of failed exorcisms, because that's what happens, um, in Catholic hospitals like Georgetown University Hospital, only to return home where his family looked in horror at the word St. Louis written in blood on (gasps) Roland's chest. No. This is the city where poor Aunt Harriet passed away. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. After 30 exorcisms were performed on Roland in just 30, under goodness. in just under six weeks. Oh, wow. The demons finally made their exit as he declared crisis domini. Roland and his family returned to Cottage Hill home to resume a normal life. He would request him and his family would request the church even to this day to remain anonymous. But what we do know is that Roland claims to have no memory of the possession and has maintained a relatively normal life, married with a family, and he even worked for NASA. Oh, my God, really? Mm-hmm. Like, that's confirmed? Yep. Wow. Crazy, okay. right? Yeah. So, Roland's story, obviously, prime for Hollywood horror, and, God, I need to come up with something with horror, because I keep feeling like I'm saying horror. <laughs> <laughs> Just go ahead and sub whore in there every time and just roll with it. Just lean into it. So it's it's ready to go. In the Exorcist movie, it moves to pre-production with a major change. 14-year-old Roland is now a 14-year-old girl, Reagan. Interesting. You know, because prepubescent possessed little girls are way more horrifying to the general public. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a nice way to put it. There's a whole study on it. Trust me. I found it. I found lots of it. Um, It is super fascinating. Um, So. What? Like that people are more interested in girls? um, It's scary. Period. Scare people, I guess. Like just women. That sounds interesting. Do you want to summarize that at all? No, because it's so much. It just goes into the psychology of it. And Hmm. it just. It's its own episode. Trust me. Um, Interesting. Maybe we'll do a mini-sode on it. 
Yes, I'm here for that. All right. So from the get, The Exorcist was hard to cast. Originally hoping to land some of the day's leading actors, it just didn't pan out. Audrey Hepburn was initially offered the role as a mother, Chris McNeil. She agreed as long as filming could be done in Rome, where she was living at the time. But to keep in budget, they eventually cast Ellen Bernstein, and the filming would remain in the States. Reagan, our film's possessed little girl, could have been played by Denise Nickerson, the actress who played Violet, the gum-chewing mean girl of 1971's Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But her mom read the script, and she shut that shit down quickly. If you've Good seen the mo- movie, you know what I'm talking about. Can we just... Can you imagine a world where... <laughs> These two, it's the mother-daughter duo of Exorcist is Audrey yeah. Hepburn and the gum-chewing oh girl from Willy Wonka. No. And, I mean, I know the the general plot points. Oh. And I think the more disturbing highlights, so I know what you're referring to. <laughs> okay, so the part of Reagan would go to another girl. Director William Friedkin said, quote, She was smart, but not precocious. Cute, but not beautiful. A normal, happy 12-year-old girl. Her name was Linda Blair. And her mother was quiet, pleasant, not a stage mother. I guess that's important. Mm, okay. Both actresses would play the, pay the ultimate price in delivering their performances. The lifelong injuries caused by accidents that both Ellen Bernstein and Linda Blair sustained while filming probably have less to do with the curse, though, and more with the director being, and this is my personal opinion, one giant ass cactus the guy (laughs) is a fucking dick okay he would do some pretty fucked up shit um just to get the perfect scene including but not limited to firing off guns behind the actor's backs just to get a startled reaction oh that's not cool no 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 Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm. don't like it once, after several unsatisfactory takes of a last fright scene, he asked actor William O'Malley, do you trust me? And mm-hmm. then slapped him across the face like a little bitch and immediately oh. said, action! <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. wow. He's rude. What a gem. Oh, I'm going to talk a lot about William Friedkin in this, so. Okay. I hope he sues me. Uh, is Bring he alive it. still? Oh, I believe so. I think so. Pretty sure. He was as pretty old. He is old. I think he was pretty like youngish when he did this. I mean he's seventy three, he wasn't that long. It's not I'm too about to find out if he's alive. I think he's alive. I think he actually just did um a documentary on like real life exorcisms. Oh yeah, he's old as hell though. He's eighty five. <laughs> sue me. <laughs> <laughs> he's got an asshole face. Go ahead and sue me too. Oh he does. So With Linda, in one of the first possession scenes, she's in bed and she's, I mean, if you've seen a clip, you've probably seen this. She's in her little blue nightgown Mm -hmm. and she is like being thrust from like a sitting to laying down position over and over. And it's just like slamming her harder and harder every time. And she's just screaming until her character Reagan is finally sedated by these doctors these on-call doctors that come in rushing in they just start poking her with needles to go to sleep baby oh my god so it's, <laughs> i like like i said i've watched this movie a gazillion times i haven't watched it in a long time so i went back through and, on youtube and rewatched 
some of the scenes I was talking about. And I did what I love to do and go in the comment section. Oh, God. Someone comment sections are a cesspool. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Somebody wrote, um, someone really doesn't want to go to school today. <laughs> Felt oh. that in my bones. Oh, <sighs> it was funny. So anyways, the dramatic scene was achieved by a contraption that Linda described as laces coming from it, which men outside of the camera shop would pull, yank, and maneuver. She said, quote, in this particular take, the lacing came loose. I am having my back pounded. I mean, I'm crying. I'm screaming. They think I'm acting up a storm. It mm. fractured my lower spine. <gasps> no, they didn't send me to a doctor. It's the footage that's in the movie. Oh, my God. It's And I've watched the uncut, like, where they finally are like, finally, after what seems like forever i mean you can tell she is in pain that's how old was she did you say um i think by the time they filmed she was 14 13 or 14 that's so sad i mean you can you see it in her face it's just it's really sad it is sad i just can't imagine somebody doing that on a kid i'd fucking kill him no i mean i wouldn't let them what the hell yeah she actually still suffers from this injury today it's so sad her movie mom, played by Ellen Bernstein, was also injured badly. This scene, for many, is one of the hardest scenes in any horror film to watch. I'll kindly call it the self-harm with the crucifix scene for um, those with a weak stomach. It's a really disturbing scene. Um, well, hold on. I need, like, I'm fairly positive I know what you're referring to. The masturbation one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, yes, I totally wish I had brain bleach after I just saw it the last time because don't think I remembered some other parts of it. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. So I feel like we need an uncut version of this because I want, I want the gory detail. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, carry on. It's your podcast. <laughs> Maybe we'll add that to the mini-sode. <laughs> okay. I like it. All right. So she's doing all of her stuff. And it it's also followed by that famous scene where she turns her head like mm-hmm. 360 degrees. You know what I'm talking about? Have you yeah. heard that yeah. one? Yeah. Um, funny enough, the writer of the book, I watched an interview where – he said, quote, supernatural does not mean impossible. And he was trying to get the director to cut that. He's like, that's so stupid. Like, your head twisting 360 degrees would surely make it fall off. Like, it doesn't make sense. But it stayed in and it's a fan favorite. So whatever. So yeah. the mom, she's trying to stop Reagan from hurting herself. It's not working. There's some other gross stuff that happens. And then Reagan grabs her mom by the throat and she slaps her so fucking hard that her mom flies across the room into the wall. Oh, no. Yeah. And there's all that other stuff happening. So I think, like, it's easy to miss, like, her flying across the room. Yeah. Um, Her reaction is, like, like, she's, like, grabbing her back. She's screaming. She's crying. Like in the actual movie? In the actual movie. Okay. That also was not acting. 
it was completely real. God. So, mm-hmm. in the shot before this take, Ellen Bernstein complained to the director that the amount of force being used to pull her, quote, I said, Billy, he's pulling me too hard. I can get hurt. And Billy said, well, it has to look real. I said, I understand, but I'm telling you, I could get hurt. And the stuntman was standing there and listening to this. And Billy said to him, okay, don't pull her so hard. But as I turned around, I felt them exchange a look. <clears throat> the stuntman pulling the cord to make her fly back confirms what she's saying. He said the director just looked at him when she turned around and said, give it to her this time. And that's what he did. Uh, so she's flying. She slams super hard. I mean, it's it's hard to watch. Um, the director then told the cameraman to like just kind of go over top of her and pan the camera down so they could get that reaction. And that's when she said that she just screamed, turn the fucking camera off. Oh, like wow. Because they just kept rolling. So William would go on to justify the force. Quote, if I hadn't let the stuntman do that with the force that he did, she would have had to do it over and over and over again. I would rather have one take that risks hurting her a little, oh. not injuring her. What yeah. a nice guy. Yeah, she was hurt. There were certain things you just cannot act. Like, that sort of hurt. And he told you, giant you ass cactus. People, people do all the time. Mm-hmm. So, the creepy voice of Pazuzu, the demon that's taking over Regan's body, it was done by actress Mercedes McCambridge. Orson Welles once called her the world's greatest living radio actress. Um, she takes method acting <laughs> to a whole nother level. Like, all right. So, Mercedes. Dear Mercedes. She had a long battle with alcoholism. She was even hospitalized several times after episodes of heavy drinking. She was able to stop drinking eventually with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it was not for the long haul. When hired for the voiceover work of Pazuzu, Mercedes insisted on swallowing 18 raw eggs, chain smoking to alter her voice. Oh. And even with her past alcohol abuse, she just swigged away at Jack Daniels because this too would distort her voice and create the crazed state of mind. Since oh. she was giving up sobriety for the role, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process. Holy With a shit. torn sheet, she was bound to a chair. This is why she's doing the voice. They ripped up a sheet. She's bound to a chair. Her hands, her legs, her throat, it's all tied down. Mm. And she told them to tighten it. Anytime Regan was supposed to be suffering. Oh and, uh, my God. I knew a little bit about this, but I did not know all this. Mm -hmm. And of course, director William Freakin obliged. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. Man, that sounds like that would hurt your voice. Yeah, she really went for it. Yeah. Mercedes said this was some of the hardest work she's ever done. And 
she actually found it offensive when people called her the voice in the exorcist and insisted that um she was an entity not a voice oh all right calm down Mm -hmm. um sounds like she opened her demon portal a little too much i think so um the details on how she fully immersed herself into this entity Mm. i mean yeah i would say it's pretty hard work i wouldn't do that i wouldn't go Mm. that far i wouldn't give up sobriety no i don't Mm. know if that's really good i mean who am i to judge but uh. i don't know i just feel like so many people like you see this with celebrities um who start their career drinking and on drugs and stuff like that. And then they feel honestly like they're not going to be funny or not be able Mm -hmm. to do their art without it. And I think that's total bullshit. Oh yeah. So you have a problem, fix it. You're still funny. And even if you're not, you're going to be alive and not funny. Right. Right. Being funny, being funny and famous and successful. It's not all there is. No, absolutely not. You know what's not funny? Being dead. Nope. (laughs) So after attending the preview for The Exorcist, she's done all the shit. um, She was visibly absent from the credits. So they're rolling credits and her name is not in it. Mm. Um, She left the theater in tears screaming at William Friedkin, Friedkin in the parking lot. I will get you for this. Whoa. William claims that she insisted that she didn't get credit because she didn't want it to take away from Linda Blair's performance. That doesn't sound on brand for her. No, not at (laughs) all. Um, Allegedly, she was not given credit by instruction of William, so Linda would be an absolute shoe-in for the Oscar season. Hmm. That makes more sense. I mean, we already know he's not the best person that's for sure after the film was released mercedes took warner brothers to court and won the case now (laughs) she is included in the credits get it girl yes not to be removed from the so-called exorcist curse fans of the movie claim that the tremendous loss she suffered when later on her son murdered his wife and children then took his own life was a direct result of her involvement in the film and listen I love a good movie curse, but this claim is disgusting on all levels. Like, stop it. (laughs) Like, no. What is the reasoning? It was really messy. Um, He, I believe, I will have to double check this um, because it it was really heavy. And I stumbled over, um, they released because of, the documents when a case is closed all that stuff becomes public and he had left a diary where he said some pretty like horrible things about mercedes and that oh my god it it is disgusting he blamed his mom for everything but you cannot blame your mom when you kill your wife you kill your kids and then you take your own like that's not your mom's fault Did, did he draw some connection with the movie or was that just her interpretation? The Exorcist was, um, I did not find where he linked The Exorcist on that. He did um, talk about several other films that she was in. Hmm. Um, that, where she let him down. 
Wow. So it's interesting. I just, I have a hard time with people saying that's a part of the movie curse. Like, one, it didn't even, like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's gross to me. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different level. So moving on, um, admittedly, the director, our friend William Friedkin, did think that there were it's strange. Not my friend. Oh, <laughs> he actually did think that there were strange things that happened that just could not be explained away. One of them happened to be a fire on the set of The Exorcist. Hmm. Fans also believe that this is absolute proof the movie's cursed. Did this asshole just set a fire to freak everybody out? Nope, because nobody was there. Oh, okay. So, not just putting his actors in physical danger, William also made the set uncomfortable as all get out. To reach an absolute chilling effect, three refrigerator units were put on set, leaving the soundstage at a staggering 30 degrees below zero. Oh my God. This would allow audiences to see the breath of Reagan and the priests totally raising the creep factor. So if you ever see like behind the scenes, everybody except for the actors are in like full on fucking snow gear. Wow. I live for movie behind the scenes things. Me too. I absolutely live for them because I think that special effects and stuff and how and, and practical effects are so fascinating. And I'm also such a complete chicken about them that it kind of demystifies it a little bit. Probably wouldn't for this one. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy because it, it really does because you can just imagine working all day in 30 like mm. negative 30 degrees. Like no, and the not, color of your skin. Not in the outfit. No and, way. Like, it really, I mean, it's a cheap, think about it, it's a cheap way to, like, get exactly what you want. I mean, my God, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, despite the cold as hell soundstage, one morning around 4 a.m., the set caught fire. That's weird. Strangely, the is only- Is fire even, I'm, I mean, this is probably a dumb question, but can fire normally even happen at that Eric, where's Eric? He would know. Putting our kid to bed. (laughs) You'll have to let us know. We'll put it on social media. Somebody, tell us. Um, I don't know. See, that's what I thought. But yeah, it's negative 30. There's a fire at 4 a.m. Here's the fucked up part. It burns down the whole soundstage. Except Reagan's demonic bedroom. No. Mm-hmm. Creepy, oh, right? Yes. I mean, that feels a little cursy. Yes, yes. I hate it. Production was halted for six weeks while it was rebuilt, and when it was finished, a Jesuit priest was brought in to bless the set. I feel like that should be a movie, Bless the Set. Ugh. Or like a documentary. As an aside, I am Googling this, and it does, uh, I think it can start that low. I would imagine it's probably less likely. But one of the related questions in in relation, I guess, to can fire start in extreme cold is, can we freeze fire? Mm. <laughs> Shut up, Google. No. The answer to that is no. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I wonder what the dumbest thing I ever Googled was. Oh, God. Google knows. 
Do you, is there a search history? Uh, yeah. All right, I'll get back oh, to yeah. you. With it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know. Uh, I'll look if it's good. I will get back to you on that one. I'll look at mine too. Okay. We can we can make that some kind of Patreon <laughs> content. <laughs> we owe those poor deers. We do. So much. We, drop, we we threw the ball last month. We didn't just drop it. Yeah, but ooh, we were talking about it today. I got some pretty amazing shit happening in the works. Yes, you do. Now I think uh, we can have one where we let's read like our top some number funniest, stupidest, most ridiculous Google search searches okay i dig it we'll do it okay all right so the exorcist was also surrounded by death nine deaths total loomed over the film all the way through post-production that's a lot Mm -hmm. two actors were in the film um jack mcgowan he died from a flu-related heart attack shortly after filming and I'm going to say this wrong, Vasiliki Maliaros hmm. Hmm. died of natural causes. What are natural causes? Demonic possession? Is I that natural? Know. I feel like if you're at Disneyland, that's what they would say. <laughs> <laughs> when they get you medical care three hours later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other deaths were those close to the actors and crew, including Linda Blair's grandfather, a night watchman a special effects expert, and a janitor who was shot and killed. Oh, my God. Speaking of murder, there was more of that, too. In The Exorcist, there's another scene that had people fainting and barfing. So much so that some movie theaters even offered up airplane-style barf bags, complimentary to moviegoers. Is it the pea soup scene? No. Oh. You'll find this interesting. And you'll have to tell me if I say this word right. Eric will tell me. I was going to say, why do you think I know? So it wasn't an over-the-top possession scene. It was just a needle and some old-ass medical technology. Mm. Pre-HIPAA, William Friedkin, while out scouting for locations and extras, found himself watching a real-life angiogram being performed by Dr. Barton Lane. An angiogram is a diagnostic test that takes x-ray pictures of blood vessels. It's still done today, but far less gruesome with the way they used to do it. So, in 1972, William witnessed a needle being stuck into a patient's neck to hit their artery, followed by a giant stream of blood shooting out. Like, this is real life. Like, he's watching this, and he's like, obviously, well, that's cool. I don't like that he's probably taking notes. No, I don't. Can you imagine like being the patient and you have this guy like, who the fuck are you? Like in my room yeah. while I'm like having my neck blood shoot across the room. Like, just get out of here. Just a movie guy. Um, so he was he's totally into it. And obviously he wanted it in his film. Oh, okay. come on, dude. He did. Um, and he, he got it that way. But not only did he want it in his film he wanted the doctor and everybody that was in the room performing the procedure to be the extras like they're the actors for that scene what the hell mm-hmm. so this guy's gross i don't like him it is very gross it gets grosser 
I'm sorry. Like, it I'm does. not even grossed out by by the the whole blood spurting thing. I'm I'm he is just personally gross. No, he's personally gross. There are a ton of people not mark safe from William. Trust <laughs> me. Like he has like you'll see. Just wait. Okay. So he wants us in this movie. Um, so that's the scene, like Reagan, she's having this procedure done, you know, when they're trying to figure out what's going on with her demon possession thing. So enter X-ray technician Paul Bateson. In the film, Paul only has a couple lines. Quote, Reagan, I'm just going to move you down this table a little, okay? Just for a short time. And very sticky as he is attaching some wires to her shoulders. Four years after the small acting gig on The Exorcist, Paul would be arrested for a murder of Addison Verrill. There was a string of murders that began in 1977 where New York gay men were being terrorized by a serial killer. The killer, the killing seemed to be specifically targeting the leather community and it would be known as the leather murders, the cuppy murders that stands for circumstances unknown pending police investigation. And it was also known as the bag murders. You can look up bag murders. It actually, there's a little more to that saying, but it's highly offensive and gross. So I'm not going there. Okay. So on September 22nd, 1977, Arthur Bell, a writer and gay rights activist, received a phone call. Eight days earlier, Addison had been found murdered and Arthur had reported on this in the village voice waging that Addison was yet another victim of a psychopathic serial killer who had been stalking the gay community. Jan Albert, who was commanding the news desk, told Arthur, quote, This nut called the office twice, claiming he killed Verrill. He wants to talk to you. He said last week's front page story was wonderful, but there's a mistake. You called the murderer a psycho. He says he isn't. Uh, Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Arthur agreed to take the call. So they're called. It's going back and forth. And the caller finally says, I killed Addison Verrill. I can't tell you my name. I'm gay. I needed money. And I'm an alcoholic. But I'm no psychopath. He would go on telling Arthur about the night of Addison's murder, meeting for the first time that night. And after heavy drinking and drug use, convince Addison to take him back to Addison's apartment. He was clearly enamored with Addison, who was a movie industry reporter for Variety. And he was also friends with Arthur Bell. That's why, like, reporting this was so important to him. And also, like, it's the 70s. got a serial killer on the loose, like, targeting, like, this community. It's scary as fuck. Yeah. So he is, like, they're having this conversation and... He says to Arthur, something hit me. Addison hadn't been reciprocal. It just wasn't a sex act itself that wasn't reciprocal. It was the soul act too. I wanted a lasting thing, something that would go beyond sex into friendship, a lover or marriage. Jesus. Then the caller quickly changed course and said, I can't fathom exactly what I did. I concede it was my alcoholism. Mm. Mm -hmm. The caller also offered personal information to Arthur during the call. At one point, he even told Arthur, I'd like to atone, but I don't want to give myself up. I wouldn't be able to practice again. I'd lose my license. Oh. 
Dumb oh, shit. shit. Dumb shit. Dumb shit. So Arthur, woohoo! He, after giving all the information that he collected during this phone call, you know, he's he's got it, right? Yeah. He's he drops it off the homicide department and then goes back home where he would receive another phone call. But this time it's a guy who claimed to be casual friends with the first caller. Mitch, who was later identified as Richard Ryan, had befriended Paul Bateson during a stint in rehab. He told Arthur the day after he murdered Addison, Paul had called him to confess the murder. He said Paul was an alcoholic trying to dry out, and he was an unemployed x-ray technician. (gasps) Unemployed due to his addiction. He wasn't even sure if his friend's name was really Paul. Telling Arthur, quote, I doubt if that's his real name. Bates' son? Bates' son. Son of Bates? Norman Bates. Was Tony Perkins' name in Psycho? Get it? I know Paul's used other names. Johnny Johnson is one. Shortly after Paul was arrested, obviously, while at Rikers awaiting trial, he agrees to meet with journalist Arthur Bell in the flesh. Paul would share with him how he struggled with drinking, how the more he drank, the more he wanted sex, but the more he drank, he couldn't perform. Um, and he really craved something more than just being a sex object. This guy, like, he is a psychopath. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Everyone can make their own opinion on what else. But he also um, spoke on the leather community. He was real big in that. He said, leather impresses me. I've never identified it with swishes and drag queens. They give gays a bad name like any type of extreme group would. And some of those um, communities were hit by the serial killer. So Mm. it's so Arthur Bell wasn't the only visitor while Paul was waiting trial. Guess who shut up? Who? Exorcist director William (gasps) Bridekin. So what the hell? There are so many twists and turns in this. Right? So he, I guess, was reading the paper and then like saw it, you know, it's like, oh shit. Like, what would you do? I gotta go meet up with Paul. (laughs) So a couple years ago on the podcast, it happened in Hollywood. They got an interview from William, and I'm gonna read you just kind of like an abridged version of what he said. Okay. So, quote, then about four or five years later after the film, I see the front page of the New York Post and Daily News, and he's accused of five, six murders. And they were murders in the S&M bars on the west side of Manhattan. His lawyer name was in the story. And I called his lawyer and I told him who I was. And I asked, could I visit with Paul? His lawyer said, okay. He was at Rikers Island. I went through about eight layers of bureaucracy. And I get into a cell where there's this guy outside and I'm sitting with him in the cell. He was very cheerful. He said, I remember killing this one guy. I cut him up and I put his body parts in a plastic bag and threw it in the East River. Oh my God. Well, this is how they got them. At the bottom of the bag, in very small print that you can't even read, it said, property at NYU Medical Center, Neuropsychiatric Center. He said, that's only one I remember, but they want me to confess to another five or six. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm thinking it over because if I confess to six or seven of these, they'll lower my sentence. (gasps) 
Oh so, my god. Put together with Arthur stuff, as you can tell, there's a ton of misinformation and discrepancies in William's account of what happened. Well, yeah. Personally, I feel like this was like just another opportunistic move on his part because not long after William met with Paul, uh, he directed a film called Cruising, which is based off the 1970 Gerald Walker novel about a police officer going undercover in New York City's leather community to solve the slayings of gay men. Oh, Jesus Christ. He's so gross. William's gross. He is the grossest. Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right. So, March 5th, 1979, Bateson was convicted of second-degree murder following a four-day trial. The evidence was so overwhelming that the jury deliberated only 30 minutes before finding him guilty. During the sentencing hearing, the prosecutor waged that Paul was also responsible for the Cuppy murders that happened shortly before the murder of Addison. Quote, he told Mr. Ryan that killing was easy, that getting rid of the bodies was the hard part. He said that he cut up his victims and put the parts in plastic garbage bags to dispose of them. I would also point out to the court that the police have evidence, though there is not a direct proof connecting them to this defendant, that there were six bodies, torsos of which were found floating in the Hudson River, wrapped in plastic garbage bags. In all six cases, examiners have said that the person who cut up those bodies was a person who was either a butcher or a person with medical knowledge because of the way the cuts were done. Mm. Mm-hmm. Paul would never be charged with the murders, and they are still unsolved. He served 24 years and three months for Addison's murder and was released in 2003, Records that I found show that Paul passed away September of 2012. Wow. Right? Wow. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. Yep. So, obviously, from day one, The Exorcist was sold on controversy. Uh, there was a trailer that was pulled because it had seizure-inducing visuals, uh, even the Pope wasn't Mark Say from the marketing campaign. Um, an indirect quote of his was used to endorse the film. Quote, demonology is an important part of the Catholic doctrine that really ought to be studied again. They plastered that on everything. The PR team was said to have really leaned into the hysteria to help create even more fear. People became so scared that some believe that even projecting the film in theaters was opening the door to demonic possession. There's a great um, documentary. It's called Curse Films. Highly recommend it. Um, I actually wound up buying a subscription to Shudder um, to check out a couple of these. And I think I'm just going to keep that whole streaming service because it's really cool. But they interviewed Linda and... She's really like a huge victim in this because people were so like upset about this movie. Like they saw her on the streets and they they weren't looking at a little girl to them. They're looking at like a possessed girl. Yeah. It got so bad with death threats and people targeting her that well after the film was released, the studio had to hire bodyguards for her. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Can you imagine? Like, no. that's the way you grow up. This poor no. fucking girl. So, yeah. It, she was absolutely terrified. Or terrorized. Probably terrified, too. 
Yeah, for sure. She's so cute now. She's a big animal lover. She said before the film, like, she wanted to be a veterinarian. She does a lot of, like, animal rescue stuff now, which I think is the sweetest fucking thing in the yeah, world. That's adorable. Um, I don't know. Is the Exorcist film cursed? You know, I guess we'll just leave that up to everybody's own opinion. But I'm going to leave you with this quote from Linda Blair's stunt double Eileen Diets in The Exorcist because honestly, as far as like cursed films, like I feel like this quote like says it best. Okay. She says, I think we bring on upon our own hell and our own heaven and we bring curses upon us. Otherwise, you have to believe that there really are demonic forces out there. Maybe we are disturbing the forces. We are. I believe so. <laughs> we are. That's that's my conclusion. And that is the cursed movie, The Exorcist. That was so good. You did so good with that. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this one. You killed it. Yay! That was such a such a fun episode. I mean, other than, you know, all the absolutely heinous shit. And then it was otherwise very fun. How's your I weather? S- it's still banging pretty hard. I haven't looked at the radar, but I don't know. I think I'm going to be okay. Well, try not to blow away, but I mean, take comfort in the fact that you've you've got a backup just in case. I don't think I opened any doors tonight. I don't think you did. I think you kept it light enough to keep the doors shut. I still think it's funny that my uncle almost arrested my grandpa over this movie. Well, I think it's funny that your grandpa was so right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Aunt Veda, for sharing that with us. Thank you so much, Aunt Veda. I love you. Well, I can't wait to hear what you have next week. Oh, it's it's bad. You want to talk about a portal? (laughs) Brace yourself. Well, good night. We'll see you next week. Don't blow away. Good night. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.